From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, growing a market for plant-based meat, cultivating a smallholder supply chain, why BT is adding climate change to its suppliers' contracts, and what you should know about electric ferries. Whatever floats your boat, this week on 350. It's February 23rd, 2018. Welcome to Green Biz 350. And joining me across the United States is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Greetings, Joel. Great to talk to you again. A short work week uh, here in the United States. Um, but uh, you were off doing stuff over the long weekend, and as was I. Tell, tell me about your weekend. So I had the frozen water sports uh, angle covered. I was in New Hampshire. On a snowmobile, I know it's not a very green activity, but we got a chance to spend a lot of time outdoors, and it was actually uh, it actually snowed over the weekend, which is very weird considering that it is now seventy degrees here in, in New Jersey. In New Jersey, yeah. yes, yep, mm-hmm. wow. crazy. Yeah. So we didn't even have to. Good news is we didn't have to shovel when we came home. It was just uh, melting <laughs> of its own accord. Well, what about you? Well, I was uh, in the the opposite direction, um, down in the very southern tip of Baja, California, on the Pacific Ocean side, and a little town called Todos Santos. Little known fact about Todos Santos, it's where the original Hotel California is, that that of the famous Eagles song. It's now a famous tourist spot with lots of things you could buy that say Hotel California. Uh, my water sport last weekend was uh, on on Monday on President's Day, which was my birthday. We went <gasps> whale watching, birthday. humpback humpback whales uh, waving to us with their fins uh, in in the uh, in the ocean. And I'd seen whales before, but it's it never gets old. It never does. I love doing that in Hawaii. I I, I could sit on the the uh, beach in Hawaii when I visit my mother and watch them breach. It's just uh, amazing. Um, when they come through. And plus, when you dive, I'm going diving in a, in a couple of weeks, as you know, but when you dive in Hawaii, um, one of the, the most special kinds of dives that you can have is um, the whale song in the background. And I've, I've been lucky enough to have that. It's just extraordinarily uh, visceral. It just makes your whole body uh, vibrate to hear them. It's crazy. So you're just, you're listening underwater to, to the sounds they're making. You are, it is, you can't wow. help but listen. It's all around you. It's, sur- it's surround sound, it literally. <laughs> so. That's very cool. I, I actually didn't know about that. I haven't been to uh, whale watching in Hawaii and we, we weren't diving and it's pretty cold water this time of year or probably any time of year uh, uh, off of Toto Santos. But uh, it's just always so great to just get away for a few days and get into some version of nature and um, and then get back to back to work. So let's do that right now. Get back to work with the Week in Review. So I want to start off with a piece that you did this week, Heather, uh, called How GM Mars and Timberland Are Cultivating smallholder farmers. I love this piece because anytime 
you can align uh, environmental sustainability and climate change and supply chains and the social impact on those at the uh, at, at the lower ends of the economic spe spectrum. It, it is it's just a good day, I think, and I really love uh, you know what what this is all about. So I, I was lucky enough to moderate a panel at the Green Biz eighteen event, and that's where this the story idea came from. Uh, it was it was GM Mars um, and Asia Pulp and Paper discussing their strategies and programs for helping cultivate these small farming organizations. And uh, the, you know, Asia Pulp and Paper, you, you, you can see why they would have a direct interest, right? They harvest trees. They, they, they are completely reliant on the livelihood and, and the thriving livelihood of, of these organizations. But General Motors, like, when, when I heard that they were going to participate on the panel, I thought, wow, uh, what does an automaker have to do with a farm in, you know, Southeast Asia? Um, and, and when you think about it, the, the, the impact um, that they have just way down the supply chain and, and, and the fact that even though they don't have that direct link, if you will, that they, they, that they want to influence all the people in between to, to do better by them, um, I think is, is just was extraordinarily uplifting. It, it was one of those sessions I walked out feeling really optimistic and hopeful. And, um, and then there were some other things that just happened around this. I noticed the Timberland, um, they've, they've got a program down in Haiti. Uh, they, they have a, um, uh, an operation in in the neighboring country, Dominican Republic, but um, they noticed uh, that Haiti, uh, the deforestation situation there is just just devastating. Uh, the country's tree cover is just one point five percent of the land. I mean, that's it. That's that's how few trees there are in Haiti because of the poor planning and the poor uh, farming practices. So Timberland got the idea to go in and help you know, basically reforest Haiti. Um, they've introduced 6.5 million seedlings so far. And at the same time, they're, they're helping uh, the farmers. And in this particular interest, what they've, they've gone out and done, and this is in their interest, and it's in the interest of the farmers, they're helping encourage um, cotton crops uh, there. It used to be the country's fourth largest export, um, and, but it hasn't been in more than 30 years. So it... Uh, They've come into this country. They're looking at the community. They're they're finding how how they can help, um, and at the same time, they're you know they're serving their own needs, of course, because they're going to be buying what you would call sustainable cotton. I mean, there's lots of definitions of that, and and you know I don't want to get too technical, but basically, they're they're making a difference. So I loved it. Um, it the the panel that the Green Biz we talked a lot about you know sort of the whys and wherefores. You know, and um, Mars, uh, for, for Mars, it's very much a, uh, a philosophy of the company. So the company has, they, they want to do mutual good, and that, that applies way down to, the, to the, the smallest of the smallest partners. So Yeah, but, but yeah. I think it's important here, and, and you mentioned this with, with Timberland, that, that in all of these cases, it, this is not just about doing good. This is not just about philanthropy. This is not just about reputation. And this is, in almost every case, it's about reducing their impacts, but also um, reducing their risk, the risk that they, that they, they may uh, run into some supply chain constraints, the risk that they may not be welcomed in certain countries because they're seen as the big multinational that's, that's doing uh, bad things there. Um, and so it's in some ways, it's their social license to operate but also helping to 
uh, bolster local economies that become their markets. I mean, I always love what Unilever set forth to do uh, a number of years ago with their sustainable living plan, where they said, you know, we want to uh, improve the live uh, livelihoods of 500 smallholder farmers. We also want to reduce childhood diarrhea, and we also, you know, we also are planning to increase our uh, customer base by one billion people. Um, and of course, those people aren't going to come from United States or Western Europe or Japan or a lot of the other developed markets. They're going to come from those communities. And so in doing what they're doing to improve the, the livelihoods and bolster local economies and and make these, these communities more resilient to uh, climate change and, and, and other things as a result of increasing, as you said, forestation, uh, they're actually creating a new customer base. So there's a lot here that's around, you know, classic doing well and doing good. Yes. Um, and just to be more specific about the two programs um, that, that I found particularly fascinating, one is the Mars Wrigley um, confectionery program around mint. So they, they're, they're working in India with the farmers. Um, and, and for for many of who, you know, which mint may only be a small portion of their, their farming revenue. So again, you know, they're helping make a difference in a community. The, the, the General Motors one focuses on rubber, so natural rubber, and, um, and they're working very closely with, with, of course, the tire makers. And um, they're, they're very interested also in having the industry, if you will, not just um, GM, but, but their competitors get involved. So I, I again, I fascinating programs from both companies, and I'm looking forward to reading more about this because it is, it, it's just... The connecting the dots, it really you do really can connect the dots and and make a difference. And so, well, I hope you'll continue to track that. But let's move over to another supply chain story that we ran this week. This one from Madeline Cuff over at Business Green. It's kind of the stick end of the carrot and stick metaphor. This one's about BT, the company formerly known as British Telecom, setting out to uh, in, introduce climate requirements to their suppliers' contracts. So the gist of the story is that. Uh, in a first for supplier agreements, BT is deploying a new contract clause that's going to require its suppliers to benchmark their emissions uh, for the supply chain of products and to ultimately reduce those emissions over the term of their agreement. So they started doing this uh, with the, the big Chinese telco technology company, Huawei, which is one of BT's big suppliers. Um, and uh, back in 2016, it signed a five-year contract with BT for networking equipment with the new emissions clause inserted. Um, and so well, this is just going to be an interesting thing to watch and see how much companies really can force their supply chains to uh, reduce their emissions. Because for most companies, overwhelmingly, 80, maybe even 90% of their emissions exist not in their own operations, but in their supply chains. And so this could be a powerful tool. It could, it definitely. And I think um, what I love about this this development is that if you look at uh, other data, I mean, so, so we hear about large organizations addressing their supply chain emissions. Most of those programs are voluntary uh, and for very, you know, important reasons you know they don't some of these organizations don't necessarily have the you know Huawei's a huge company but a much smaller organization might not have the wherewithal to get started or the money to invest in a in a new heat you know heating and air conditioning system or make those LED lighting upgrades and so forth so the fact that British Telecom is is now 
this big supplier, yeah, let's 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 put some metrics around this. Let's talk about this every month. And that was part of the the reason that that BT decided to do it was they check in on this every month, just like they check in on every other clause in the contract. Um, and the interest, the backstory was pretty interesting. Huawei was very reluctant um, to get involved. Like at first, they, they, they approached them about doing this um, and they were very worried. At least um, that was what the sustainability teams uh, reported. But once they actually started kind of working things out and, and putting, putting some actual details around this, they discovered, hey, this is going to be actually really good for them. So um, it wasn't as onerous as they thought, and it's it's going to help them save money. I think Huawei is specifically expects to save 131,000 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. Um, they're they're doing some, uh, and we're going to have energy savings as a result. So the idea is that right now this is voluntary, and you know voluntary. In other words, voluntary in that you don't necessarily have to have the clause in your contract. Once it's in the contract, it's not voluntary. Um, but um, BT is hoping that other suppliers will agree to do the same. And, and they're so, so they're putting Huawei out there as an example of what's possible. Yeah. And I assume at some point it becomes mandatory if, if it all goes well. But I, I think the opportunity here is that a lot of the smaller companies that are part of the supply chain, that there are big companies like Huawei, but there's, but there's also often a lot of smaller firms. And those are the ones that haven't, just to invoke that trite expression, haven't picked yet the low-hanging fruit, you know, swapped out the LED, uh, the light lighting for more efficient LED or more efficient air conditioning or, or other basic things that you can do. And this gives them an opportunity uh, to, to do those and with, with obviously a big customer like BT uh, leaning on them or encouraging them at least to, to do these kinds of things. So, you know, anytime a company can reduce uh, 5 or 10% uh, of, their, of their energy use, that's often a, a, a decent ROI that uh, obviously helps BT with their carbon emissions reduction goals while the supplier is saving money. So now let's move over to another story that's, uh, again, you know, in this climate uh, carbon pricing science-based targets realm. Uh, this is from Tom Kerr uh, over at the World Bank, an old friend of mine who's the lead climate policy officer, wrote a piece about an event that happened uh, back in January in the run-up to the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos that brought together financial institutions, companies, uh, to talk about the risks and opportunities around climate change. And what I thought was interesting there is that you know, sort of looking and cataloging the kinds of risks uh, from physical damage to assets to, uh, to some of the more esoteric kinds of risks, uh, legal and reputational risks that are coming into focus. There have been lawsuits filed in the United States uh, around companies and governments not taking on their climate responsibility, uh, technology and market risks, you know, due to, to new technologies that are, that are changing in some cases more rapidly than we thought, like the, you know, demise of internal combustion engines for vehicles in favor of, of electric ones, uh, carbon pricing and other policy risks that's, that are on the rise as more companies put a price on carbon as a key part of their climate change strategies. And then things like stranded assets, which we've talked about in the past, which are becoming a reality, particularly for fossil fuel companies and their investors, as more investors and insurers 
are following the leads of big, uh, like insurance giant AXA and Lloyd's of London, in, in just saying we're not going to cover or invest in fossil fuel assets. So this is uh, a story about a conference, which often is aren't that interesting. Our conferences being the exception of, to that, of course. Uh, but but I think they, he did a good job of capturing. Uh, the the, the the challenges and the opportunities that both companies and financial institutions are facing. Yeah, and I think by the way we hear about new science-based targets pretty much every week now, um, and that's a great thing. I think f- officially the the science-based targets initiative has 339 companies on board, um, but that's that number continues to tick up um, as as organizations. Do the math, right? And the and, day's and not over yet. The day and the day is not over. So we heard about Heineken last week, and uh, we got another food company, Tyson, that's now moving forward with this. And uh, I love, I love Tom's, you know, advice: do not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right? Just get started. I think that is just so important because I mean we hear that all the time, but it's true. So true. I think so many teams get caught up in. This isn't exactly what it should be. Well, okay, so let it be the first step. And I, I, I love that that advice because we can't we can't afford to sit around. We we need to move forward. And if even if we're moving forward and then set, resetting the bar, like Microsoft, right? They've they're, they've adapted their internal carbon fee program. Initially, they had this is okay. We're going to charge this. We're going to charge you for what you're using, right? And and so that was where it started. It kind of sounds pejorative. Now they're using it to like help invest in the ones that aren't doing a good job. So they're taking the revenue and reinvesting it back to, to change that. So um, I love that people are, are taking the first step and, uh, and then moving the bar ahead and, and stepping over it and stepping over it and, and, and just keeping to push it out. So And I love that, uh, I just have to toot our horn a little bit here, that this story, Tom Kerr's piece, uh, touches on two of the 10 trends we pointed out in this year's Data Green Business Report. One is the rise of science-based targets that, that uh, senior writer Cassandra Sweet wrote for the report. And the other is the the rise of the finance community uh, in looking at uh, taking on the climate challenge and, and playing a much bigger role in how do we finance and both with carrots and sticks, the uh, the opportunities in front of us around both climate change and the sustainable development goals. So good on us. Plant-based protein seems to have become a thing lately. We see uh, burgers that are impossible or beyond meat and all kinds of companies that are sprouting up, no pun intended. Uh, Associate Editor Anya Hollemeiser visited one company in San Francisco and uh, is here to talk about it. Uh, Anya, tell us who you visited. Hi, Joel. I visited the headquarters of Just Foods. You may know them as uh, Hamptons Creek. They recently rebranded, and they are a six-year-old company founded in 2011 by Joshua Tetrick and Josh Balk, um, who was the senior director of food policy for the Humane Society. And their mission is to manufacture plant-based foods, so not burgers just yet, but their main products are mayonnaise, dressings under the Just label that you might find in stores like Walmart and other um, big box and online retailers. Right. So uh, who'd you talk to there and what'd you do when you were over there? 
I spoke with Udi Lazimi. He's the plant sourcing director at Just. He has a very fascinating job. He basically goes all over the world and to different countries and indigenous communities to do research on um, the hundreds of thousands of plant species around the world that can be uh, used to create high protein food items like um, cookies, ice cream, and now they're working on an unscrambled eggs. But I was also taken on a tour through the entire um, facility that includes this really cool plant library and uh, spoke with some of their chemists and product managers and even a chef who was brought over from a Moto restaurant in Chicago to create items that really resemble any other plant protein. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it, my conversation with Udi because he was able to speak to the supply chain side of the sustainable agriculture industry. We began our conversation with me asking Udi about what he does day to day. So I'm basically in charge of sourcing all of the plants for our discovery process, um, which is part of our R&D program here at Just. Uh, so, you know, a big part of the premise of the work that we're doing here at Just that's really innovative um, is to screen the world's plants to discover functional applications in the food system that can make food more sustainable, uh, more healthy and more accessible to people all over the world that are in need of uh, access to more sustainable and healthier food. Uh, we have a really innovative state-of-the-art uh, program, uh, really one of, a, one of a kind in the world, where we take plants and put them through these molecular and functional experiments. Uh, it all starts with sourcing plants. I go out into the world and through um, different channels of sourcing, such as uh, working and meeting with indigenous communities, uh, meeting with farmers, sourcing from researchers at agricultural institutions, and working with uh, the seed industry and other industries. Uh, we're able to bring in a wide diversity of plants, and we're really botanical about it. So we really look at species within plant families and diversity of cultivars and varieties within species. And so we built here uh, in our facility in San Francisco um, a really uh, robust plant library uh, that is made up of uh, representative specimens, basically, of these thousands of different materials from all these different uh, corners of the plant kingdom. What are the common items or proteins that you uh, use in order to create the Just Brand products like eggs or um, mayo? So uh, the products that we currently have on the market are really enabled by uh, just a couple of different plant proteins that we discovered work really well in those specific formulations. Um, uh, and in different ways, we were able to identify these, these different materials. Um, the, the mayo and the dressings are, uh, we say, enabled uh, by uh, pea protein, which is something that's quite common in the uh, beverage industry and in other applications in food, um, but we really found uh, an application to make something that is well known, uh, we think, taste uh, better and be healthier and be better for the planet. So pea protein is what allows for the emulsification of the oils in a mayonnaise platform or a dressing. Uh, sorghum is uh, what we use in our uh, baking platform, so our cookie dough and our cookies. Um, instead of eggs, and for the uh, the kind of greatest uh, accomplishment um, so far uh, is the uh, the use of the mung bean 
which is a fourth plus thousand year old um, uh, in terms of its current culinary use in cultural applications all over uh, mostly Asia, 4,000 years, years of use that we know of. Now we're using it for a whole nother process that nobody else in the world um, has uh, discovered that it's uh, good for, which is that it's phenomenal at basically mimicking some of the key functionalities of an egg. So we're able to actually make our, our just scramble out of uh, mung bean. Basically, when you look at the amino acid profile of an egg, uh, there are uh, over 40 different uh, functional applications of eggs, uh, and, and the mung bean actually has um, a large uh, percentage of those actual functional properties as well. So that's why it works so well in, in the egg application. I can speak from experience. I had a little taste of the the just egg, and it really is remarkably similar in taste and feel of of an egg. And then, of course, there are probably lots of challenges to getting there. What are some of the the bigger ones that you face or have overcome in order to to create these products? It's one thing to develop a formula. It's one thing to discover that plants have these incredible uses and applications, and that our robots are able to tell us, hey, this is good at emulsifying, this is good at... um, at gelating, this is good at foaming. These are all food science terms that, you know, they create really interesting, innovative things in a laboratory, but you never know uh, what something might actually look like as a product. And so one of the challenges that we embarked on early on to address was making food that actually tastes incredibly good, because at the end of the day, that's all that really matters um, in order to get products into the hands of people across across the world and have it be consumed. So. Um, so one of the you know the primary challenges is is actually uh, creating a product that tastes good. And so we have uh, a whole team of culinary masters, basically chefs, in our kitchen, um, whose entire job it is to take these discoveries that we uh, come up with in the biochemistry and food science world and uh, apply them in food models and make really delicious products. Um, so. You know, and it's a constantly uh, growing uh, and evolving process. We've changed our mayos, we've changed our dressings, we've changed our cookies, and we've changed our scramble to constantly improve um, its health profile, fat profiles, things like that, and also its flavor profile. I'd say another big challenge um, is supply chain management. And uh, for the mung bean specifically, it's really important that we have a supply chain that um, really is traceable all the way back down to the farm. You know, they're, they're, we're just embarking on this journey. We've discovered some really great things and put out some fabulous products, but we know that there will be many more to come. Um, uh, the challenges of just finding new plants and continuing to screen through that diversity is probably the, the next big challenge that we're working on. The next steps are focusing in on improving the health qualities of our food, improving the environmental impact of our food, um, improving the um, overall uh, waste uh, footprint, all these different elements of impact um, are all really important to us and we're just going to continue to improve that. Uh, the overall vision is to completely transform the food system and to be in every aisle of the grocery store either with our products or uh, enable other companies to be able to make better products uh, using our technology. So that's really interesting, Anya. What's the potential here for these kinds of companies? 
So as you said at the beginning of our conversation, there are tons of brand names that are growing um, in the consumer markets like Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat, along with other brands that you can find at, for example, Whole Foods. The plant protein market is growing. It was over $5.5 billion in 2016. It's expected to reach $8.2 billion by 2022, according to um, market analysts. And some big moves that happened last year, um, Aldi, Sainsbury, Tesco all launched vegan product lines. Um, Canada's largest meat distributor, Maple Leaf Foods, acquired uh, brands like Field Roast and Light Life. And even for just the consumer and restaurant industry, um, TGI Fridays is going to sell Beyond Burger in its locations um, this year. So it's, it's definitely something that consumers are asking for and that agricultural companies are looking into and making big moves. Great. Well, lots to chew on there. Thanks so much, Anya Hollemeiser, Associate Editor. Thanks, Joel. Next up, we have a bit of a fairy tale. When it comes to debates about the future of low-carbon public transportation, much of the dialogue centers on the potential benefits of buses or other on-the-road vehicles, but that's beginning to change. In early 2015, technology giant Siemens helped deliver the first fully electric car ferry. The vessel handles a 10-mile route across the Sonjenford in Norway, making the crossing almost three dozen times daily. Called the Ampere, the boat uses three battery packs, one is on board, the other two are stationed at each pier. It can handle up to 120 cars and 360 passengers, and the boat can make the trip three times before the battery has to be changed or recharged. Similar electric ferry programs are cropping up in Europe, and now the idea is gaining interest in coastal cities in the United States. Approximately 118 million Americans use ferries on an annual basis, and ridership increased 25% between the years of 2013 and 2015, the last year for which figures are available. So how serious is this interest in hybrid or electric ferries? I spoke with David Grusha, Director of Marine Solutions at Siemens, about what's driving adoption. I'd love to share two excerpts from that conversation. The first segment touches on what's driving interest in Washington State and California. Plus, he addresses some of the hiccups that early adopters have experienced. Here's that clip. Washington State is a little bit unique um, because they have state targets and the state operates uh, North America's largest ferry fleet. So there, I I think you have a a little bit of alignment. in California, you have the California Air Resource Quality Board CARB that, um, you know, is trying to drive the adoption of cleaner technologies. Um, so there are a lot of different stakeholders involved in some of these decisions. Um, it's the people that ride the ferries. Um, in one case, we're talking about an electrification of a ferry that serves um, um, a small island of residence. And they, they, they use the ferry on a regular basis, so they're certainly an important voice or stakeholder. And you've got the crew that operates the boats who have to become familiar with the technologies um, and comfortable with it. Um, you know, an interesting one, um, Chris was on the Norled, but he can talk to it, but 
you know, that all electric ferry for the crew was a challenge. They didn't know if the boat was ready to go because they're used to that diesel engine, you know, hammering away and they could feel that. Um, they could see smoke coming out of the stack from the engines. But when it's an all electric ferry, you know, sort of like a Tesla or a Leaf, you don't have that. So, you know, they're leaving dock, not 100% sure that they've got the power to go and get underway. They had to get used to trusting, you know, a screen and a meter to see that, yep, we've got the power, we can go. So you, you, you got to get the um, um, the crews, no pun intended, on board uh, with the adoption of the technology. Another thing to consider as this transition occurs will be the role of autonomous technology for tasks such as running the charging process or handling navigation. But it will be a long time before we see robot ferries crossing urban harbors. Here is a second and final clip from David Grucha. So you see in um, these ferries lots of different kind of autonomy. And, uh, and uh, people in the marine industry are working on uh, a definition of the seven different steps to, to, to full autonomy, um, right, where you would basically have a driverless ferry. Um, I don't think there's um, – I think it, I think we're a little bit away from that full autonomy, right, where, where nobody um, is is driving or navigating the, the vessel. But – um, you do see the adoption. So, you know, to keep with the schedule and the amount of time that you can charge the vessel, uh, charge the batteries on the vessel is a big deal. So people are automating the charging stations. So they'll bring the boat uh, to dock quicker, lock it in place so they can quickly connect and safely connect um, a charging system so they can charge faster. Um, there's onboard um, systems um for things like battery health uh, and details like that that um, get uh, beamed well get sent to the bridge but can also get uh, sent to the shore side um, and then um, right so so that if there's a problem uh, people can meet the boat when it comes to the shore side and then there's just vessel, you know, like awareness systems that are like a, an early stage for, for the captains um, of the vessel as well. Um, to, so they can, so they know what, what is around them. Um, and, and if you look at um, vessels, right, a lot of them already have AIS tracking. Um, so they already have systems on board that send out their location. So people know where they are. There's websites on, on board where you can track them and they can share a position relative to ship to ship. Um, so the, there are already a couple steps along that way. Again, because of the concerns with safety, and I think it's almost like you, know, you talk about getting on a um, in an autonomous car, I, I think you're, you're still going to have large portions of the public that are going to want to know that there's a, a captain that's in charge right before they uh, before they go. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. 
And while you're there, look for the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Hit us up by email at 350greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. And this week, we bid adieu to associate editor Anya Hollemeiser, who is moving on to new adventures. Thanks, Anya, for your great contributions to GreenBiz and this podcast. We expect to see more great things from you going forward. We'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. 